Data storytellers. Today on the show, I have with me Dave Coughlin. Well, Dave and I have been in contact for a few months now. Um, he's joining one of our masterclasses um, coming up in September. And uh, Dave has a very interesting background. So he spent some time um, uh, at PwC, also now with CVS. And he's working with data science in the commercial growth analytics capability. So Dave, first of all, welcome on the show. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, likewise, like I'm very excited to explore some of these topics with you because when we uh, first spoke, uh, I think probably the conversation went for over an hour. It was really cool. I wish we could actually record it, right? But now we have the opportunity to immortalize inspiration and capture some of those insights and share it with the public, share the good news. So first of all, what brought you into the world of analytics? Just if you want to give a quick introduction into those audience members who don't know anything about you, uh, how did you end yeah, up yeah. Uh, in your control? So I had, as an undergrad, I had studied applied math and I was trying to, to figure out what to do with it. Uh, the, the best part about applied math is you could basically do anything you want with it. Um, the, the, the crappy part is that you can basically do anything you want with it, right? There's no obvious career path, like say an engineer or a doctor, right? Like I studied engineering, I'll go be an engineer. As I was getting ready to exit, a a like a talent agency tapped me on the shoulder and was like, hey, have you ever thought about business intelligence? And I was like, I have no idea what that is. Keep going. And they said, it's it's math in a business setting. I said, sure, why not, right? And so I started in the, the BI space back in, uh, in 06. I'm just going to fully date myself now. And spent the first couple of years just sort of trying to find a like an industry that was exciting, right? So my first job was at Staples doing marketing analytics, like who are we going to send the catalog to? Because those catalogs are as thick as your thumb and they're expensive. So you want to make sure you send it to the right person. Uh, didn't quite enjoy that as much as, as I had hoped and then kind of zigzagged a bit. Uh, did some work in casualty insurance, so like the home auto business stuff, uh, which is pretty fun. But... Uh, a bit mature and I wanted something that had more white space. And that's how I got into healthcare. And I've been in healthcare since 2011. So about a decade plus uh, in healthcare. And I've been, I was a boomerang. So I was CVS from 11 to 15, PwC from 15 to 18, and then back to CVS uh, ever since. Uh, and so that's the quickest encapsulation along the way, uh, getting progressively better at programming. And that's really what allowed me to make the transition from like BI to data science was like leveling up that like computer science side of the spectrum because the math was always there. Uh, but then as you get better learning the SQL, learning the R, learning R was like the rocket ship. Uh, and then, yeah, that's how I basically got into, into data science. Hmm. And what do you do now? So what is your mandate? What are you working on right now at CBS? Yeah. So it, the, the way I like to describe it is, is, uh, if a business, an employer, doesn't have CVS products for its insurance, we need to figure out how to change their mind, right? Uh, and so there's like five key questions that my team answers, right? Which companies should we target? 
right? Amazon versus FedEx versus Staples versus, you know, pick a business. We go all the way down to two employees too. It's not just the big guys, right? So small bit, and that's actually like, there's a lot of funny analytics down at the smaller end of the spectrum because you can discover them. Right. Mm. Nobody gets points for pointing out, hey, have you heard of Amazon? Right. Mm. So we have less than 10 employees and we're actually looking for health insurance. Just putting it out there if you want to capture a lead. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lead. All right. So who do we go after? What should we try to sell them? That's the current thing that we're trying to to solve, right? So looking at a company like data storytellers, like, okay, what's the right product for, for data storytellers versus what's the right product for like Joe's Garage? What's the right product for, you know, Amazon? How should we structure ourselves to sell that, right? Because there's more businesses in say Florida than Wyoming. So you need a certain number of sales reps to to, to optimize that. Which brokers or producers or consultants, the middlemen, uh, do we want to focus on? Because it's a broker-mediated, probably very important uh, stakeholder in the constellation of different stakeholders. And then finally, why should they buy from us? So can we create uh, analytic proof points that can be shared with the sales teams so that we can stand out versus like a United or like a, a Cigna or a Blue Cross? Right. So those are the five questions that we try to answer. And we basically, uh, we, we amass data, proprietary and external open source data. We analyze that data and then we disseminate those analyses through applications and basically arm the sales organization with the best possible insights to go and try to convert cases. That's that's essentially the the system that we have. And we're measured by how many of those companies we can convert, right? So if somebody's currently got United, we identify them, we make a recommendation to the sales team and they, they come over to Aetna, that's a win for my team, just as much as it's a win for the sales team. Mm. So, you, because you've been there now for a uh, for a couple of years, uh, yeah. while trying to achieve that, uh, what did you observe as the the key challenges for you? Like, what were the most uh, difficult parts of that journey? I think the biggest one that stands out early on was a like a, I'll call it like a skepticism, right? And not that people don't believe in analytics, but a lot of people don't believe they need it. And I remember I had just joined the company and I was doing a roadshow to promote kind of an application that the team had built before I joined. And a a sales leader pulled me aside and said, hey, this is cool. Like you guys are doing things, but like, I'm never going to need it. I'm never going to use it. He's like, this is a relationships game, right? It's not a numbers game. It's a relationship game and you can't quantify a relationship. I said, okay, thank you for helping me understand what I'm working with here. But uh, we've been basically trying to change that perception for the last like, you know, five years, let's call it right. So that skepticism of, you know, I don't think we need analytics or I don't need analytics. I know who the best brokers are. I know who the best prospects are. And, and being able to pierce that uh, was probably our biggest challenge, right? And because it's like such a handshaky type of a game, right? And so you, they're not wrong. It's just, it could be even better. All I want to do is help them shake the right hands. I'm not trying to mess with their handshaking game. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think we've been building the relationships and now they kind of trust us and they want to use our stuff and they start to find ways to 
basically bring it, bring out the value. So that was probably our biggest challenge when, when I first got there was that hmm. skepticism. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes perfect sense. It's really cool because as, as you were telling this uh, short anecdote. So first of all, yes, I mean, sales, it is a relationship game. And uh, he's absolutely right in that. Now he had some misconceptions about what data analytics is and what it can do. So you actually have to do basically an inception in terms of, and correct me if I'm wrong, to sell him on the idea of data analytics. And I imagine that sales being a relationship game, it's a handshakey type of game and you build trust and build a relationship and then you capitalize on that to, to change someone's perception and behavior. Uh, I guess it required some sales efforts from your end. So uh, how could you actually achieve that? How could you change how they saw uh, data analytics and how could you transform that conception? Yeah. I mean, if you look at my bookcase, uh, it's probably got more sales books and psychology books than math books at this point. But the there's a couple of things that worked really well. So the first was finding an advocate, right? So when I started, there were there were like 15 sales leaders that we needed to work with. And you could immediately map them into into like cohorts, right? So you had like the skeptics. You had the like kind of like early adopters, like, oh, I love analytics. I do analytics already. Like now you're like a professional analytics person. So uh, I bet we could do lots of great things together. And then you have kind of like a bulge in the middle of people that are just kind of like, I'm not sure, but what the hell, I'll try it if, you know, if someone else likes it. So finding that early advocate allowed us to do kind of the social proof method, right? So social proof, sales tactic. Right. So, you know, take two companies that are competing with each other, FedEx and UPS. If I tell FedEx that UPS bought my widget, then suddenly they're going to be like, oh, don't want to be left in the lurch here. Right. So if I had one market leader who's like, I want to try this analytics with you, I want to come with you, I want to use it. And then they get some success from it, then it snowballs. Right. That's how I went from one to two to five. Now, I can't get all 15 because some of them are just like obstinate and choose nonsense. And that's okay. Right. Not everybody's going to be a, the, a super a super fan of analytics, but getting that sufficient saturation point, I would say, and at least the next project. So you start with maybe like those market leaders, but then maybe you do some work with the headquarters team. Maybe you do some work with like executive leadership, but that finding the champion who's willing to then go to bat for you, because then I'm not the one selling it, right? Wh who am I? I don't sell right? I sit in my office and basically either me or my team, we build stuff, right? But if a fellow salesperson's like, oh no, like this works, it's helping my market do better. Well, they're all super competitive. So again, if, if market A is starting to take the lead because they've exploited this capability, pretty much everybody else is going to try to exploit the capability too. So that, that's a big one, I would say, and how we started to turn, turn the tide. Another one is moving up the like chain of command a bit to try to get like that executive endorsement because if the 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 best possible outcome besides the like guerrilla warfare of one market at a time is when you can implant the capability into a business product the official business process right so if the if the senior head of of sales is like all markets will do x in their say annual go to market project or, or task and you're inside of that thing now you have the user base basically for free 
right? So that was the other tactic that we used, which was just sort of try to find the process and attach yourself to the process. That makes it super sticky if you can get your hooks in there. Mm, so, so there's like a bottoms up and a top down uh, approach, if you will. Exactly. I, I love this because you're basically waging war on multiple fronts, strategically doing that. Uh, and so just so I can, so I can conceptualize that mm-hmm. in both of those cases, you were targeting individuals, right? So that's the whole idea of, right. okay, let, let me find the right person to talk to because I can spend my time with the skeptics, but I always hit a brick wall, right? Now those people in the middle, yeah, they might be able to be turned around and educated and all that stuff, but you want the quick wins. You, you go for the low hanging fruit. So you identify those individuals and then work on convincing them. And then you kind of do the same thing with the executive sponsorship as well, right? So I imagine you would go for those guys who are more open, you identify them, and then you follow a course of action to change how they see data analytics and get them to actually implement it in their plans and strategic priorities, right? Yeah, it's basically the same blueprint at two different organizational layers. You get one vice president to say, yeah, this is cool. Then they can go tell their friend, the vice president, and you start to light up different parts of the business. Or on that market by market basis, you get one market to say like, this is great. And then they can help you go market by market to light that up. So if you just, they're just like different layers of, of the company. But again, finding somebody who's open-minded, showing them the value, solving some problem for them. Like, hey, like, what's bothering you? What's stopping you? How are you, like, what, what do you think is standing between you and blowing the doors off your quota or between you and solving this problem that like the, the senior vice president's asking you for, right? And once you just help alleviate a little bit of that pain, then they're like, oh, what else can you do? What else can you do? What else can you do? And then that's how you just, it, it becomes self-perpetuating at that point. Mm. If we follow this analogy of yeah. you know the, the military analogy, I'm I, I'm a fan because uh, back in uh, Hungary, I was in uh, operational uh, intelligence, right? So, so I, I like using that. Um, so how, how how do you go about this? So when you gather the information um, uh, as a data analytics leader. Um, how do you approach these people? Like, what kind of questions do you open with? How do you how do you approach building that that relationship and then gaining that trust initially in the first stages? And then we can talk about how you build the right solutions for the right people. Yeah. So uh, there's a uh, there's one stakeholder that comes to mind who was initially skeptic, uh, won them over, and they've been absolutely like invaluable in helping us to open up those like dead vice president here. So what we actually did was we found someone junior in this person's organization that again was sort of like open-minded about analytics right you it's really 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 difficult if like just from top to bottom everyone doesn't like analytics it's like you can't even get a foothold like that's not where you're going to go but we found someone that was a little bit junior in the in the organization that was like there's something about what you guys are saying. Like, I think, I think there's something to it. So what we did was we took a swag at a problem we knew they had. And the problem that we worked on was basically, again, going back to this like broker thing, which was like segmenting them, right? Like understanding them, you can kind of clump them into like psychographics or something like that. And you'd know, like, okay, over here, we want to focus on something. And then over here, we want to focus on something else, right? So it's not better or worse. It's just, where are they in like the relationship maturity type of thing? But helping them to like get that, because there's 20,000 of them. You can't just, it's not like, you know, five, right? There's so many of them. So uh, working with them. And then here's the fun part that I've noticed. We take the swag. Now we know the swag is wrong. But that like innate desire to correct 
suddenly let you know what right looks like, and then you can actually get to what what's right. Okay, so we start small. We're working with her. Uh, she's basically confirming that directionally it's correct, but it's probably not the right answer. Then we finally get that meeting with the with the vice president and say, we know that there's an opportunity here to better segment. So let's show you what we think might make sense. And we had this very thoughtful framework. It's based on like size and footprint and blah, blah, blah. Right. And they're like, wow, like this is super thoughtful. Like we hadn't gotten there on our own. I was like, okay, so, yeah, I don't like it, but like, I, I see that you're trying and uh, I've got other ideas for things I could have you work on. Cause that's actually not my biggest problem. Right. But it was like that. We still ultimately had to find an advocate, but it was like a, to go back to the military, right? We didn't go for the general. We went for like the, the lieutenant. And then the mm -hmm. lieutenant's like, yeah, there's something here. And then we worked our way up to that vice president or that general in this, in this situation. And then it was like, okay, I appreciate what you tried to do. It's not really what I want. But now that you've shown me that what you're capable of, you're not just a bunch of like, like random people I've never met, here's something I'm going to challenge you to solve. And then that's what we did solve. And then that we're off to the races. Now we've had like, you know, 13 different use cases and this person continues to partner with us on future projects. So uh, I guess I basically just went all the way back to just talk about what I did before. I right? find an advocate and then, you know, work your way up or work your way over. Uh, but that's basically what we did for them. Hmm, that makes so, sense. Anything you uh, want to? No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then following the chain of command. So, yeah. so th that was really cool. And also ultimately you demonstrated competence you demonstrated willingness to understand yes, what yes. they're doing right because what we see often and it's a it's 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 a mindset issue and uh you can't really blame the data analytics practitioners because when you work with numbers all the time you work with technology all the time it kind of shifts your thinking and you end up missing the forest for the the forest for the trees right am i using that that expression well yeah i think so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so 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 basically uh, here you you took that first step and then you kind of earned your way into solving a real problem. So uh, might I ask, because I have a few questions around this, but uh, you mentioned that you have more sales books now on your shelf than data analytics books. Like, is there any one of those that you like particularly? Because I mean, I was also brought up in sales, uh, particularly like back in the day when I entered the business world. And I know that 95% or maybe even higher percentage of the sales books are actually garbage, but then there are a few that really hit on the realities of human decision-making that if you extrapolate and then you map it onto your own business environment, you can actually get great results. Do you have any favorites? I do have a couple. Uh, so the first is Influenced by Cialdini. Yeah. The second is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Yeah. I will tell you, like, as far for that one in particular, like, if I think of books where it's like maximum read it and then use it, like, that's probably number one. Uh, the, the, this like it's so practical like that book is so practical uh and then there's another it's two books uh hold on david mccrary has two books they're they're like plays on the following phrase like you are less dumb or you are not so smart or something like that there's two of them it talks about cognitive biases and uh and heuristics that we fall into so there's uh there's that great example that is in his book that I've seen. I see this all the time. People cite it. It's uh, they were trying to figure out where to armor fighter jets. Going back to the military analogy, mm -hmm. right? And so they looked at the jets that came back from missions, and they're like, okay, well, here's all the bullet holes. Like this is clearly where they're getting hit. 
So that's what we should put with the armor. And then someone said, well, no, because they're coming back. So those are like safe places to take a bullet. You probably want to armor the stuff that's not getting hit because that's actually the sensitive stuff. So it sort of inverted the interpretation of the data. And like that, that's in, in his book. Uh, and I see that one all the time, which is, and that goes to the bullseye story that, that I know we're going to try to work in here. Yeah. But those books are also super useful because you see these cognitive biases and heuristics all the time. And analytics job, I think, in many ways is to is to counter that. But also, as analytics professionals, we have to be careful not to fall into them ourselves. Mm. Right? I don't think anybody works harder to find the right answer than a data scientist who can, you know, torture the data, bend like the damn the damned lies and statistics type thing, right? So, uh, and that I think that's a Mark Twain quote. But mm. uh, you got to make sure you're not falling into like a sunken cost fallacy or uh, availability bias, right? Like you don't want to Google for the source that agrees with you. You should Google for the source that disagrees with you, right? So those those books. So Influence by Cialdini, Never Split by Voss, and then David McCreary's two books on cognitive. Uh, biases. I would say if you, those four would be like the best starter kit. So I haven't read the McCreary books, uh, Influence and Never Split the, the the Difference, along with Pitch Anything from Oren Claff. I can recommend it to you. Um, okay. okay. No, no, really good. I mean, again, I, I read so many of these. Uh, my top three are Influence, Never Split the Difference, and Pitch Anything. It's about anything. human decision making. Yeah, it's it's uh, based on neurobiology. Uh, nice. It's really good, but I haven't read uh, the McCreary, McCready? McCreary. McCrary books. Yeah. So, so cognitive bias, because I will have maybe some questions around like, how do you implement some of those principles? Because that's what uh, the Cialdini is or Cialdini, because he's, uh, he has a uh, Italian and Italian background. Uh, I'm not even sure about the proper pronunciation, but Cialdini. So that's basically about the seven key principles of human decision-making, right? I would be interested in how do you implement that in, uh, in a senior data leadership uh, role, but also never split the difference. I think that's a, that's an obvious one because you always negotiate, right? But, both in life, but also as a, as a senior data practitioner, when you're trying to sell analytics in the business, it's ultimately a game of negotiation. Maybe not bartering as you think about it, because it's a very specific subset of negotiation, but negotiating perspectives, changing someone's view and shifting uh, uh, how they view the world. So, uh, but about the, the McCrary books, so the cognitive bias, this is really interesting to me, because uh, you said that you can use it and leverage uh, that concept in two different ways. One is that you don't fall into that trap yourself. So you're being conscious that you work with a specific subset of technologies that can really influence how you think about the world and you need to break out of that so that you can connect to your audience. But at the same time, if you do have that perspective that the outside world doesn't have, and can look for ways of how to leverage that and bring that into their world to maybe reveal something that they haven't thought about before. So uh, I would be interested in that. So so how did that happen? Because you you kind of mentioned, you hinted at that, that, that you guys found something that the business did not understand and you could actually generate huge value through that. So what what actually happened? Because I'm, I'm beyond intrigued at this point. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love this story. So thank you for, for finding the way. So this goes to the bullets and armor uh, cognitive construct. I'm not even sure what to call it, right? So the, the company asked my team to help replenish for a business line that we were losing a lot of membership. I'm going to be a little bit vague on the upfront just in case it turns out to be proprietary stuff. But just to make a metaphor for those that are not as close to insurance, 
the more people that have our insurance, the better, right? And imagine a bucket with a hole in the bottom. Okay, now they didn't ask us to fix the hole. They asked us to replenish the bucket, put more water on top. Now, if you had asked 10 people at the company, like where to go and find opportunity to replenish the bucket, 11, because somebody was eavesdropping, would have said, you have to focus on the smaller end of the spectrum. That's where the money is. That's where the action is, right? And so we did an analysis. We looked at the smaller end of the spectrum, but we we kind of opened the aperture a bit while we were doing it because it, it costs nothing to add extra companies to the mix, okay? Like the marginal cost of having like three cohorts versus five cohorts, but the way that we were doing it was like nil. So we're like, get more in there. Like, Throw the kitchen sink at this. So we're doing this study, and what we had learned was, despite the conventional wisdom that it was a smaller end of the spectrum, where we found this monster-sized opportunity, to, to give you a sense, it's like a multi-billion dollar opportunity, was at the bigger end of the spectrum. And literally every angle of the analysis that we've done, we've been very thorough. We looked at like geography, we looked at industry, we looked at brokers, we're all kinds of different dimensions. And the only dimension that really stuck out was company size for us. And it was completely contrary to what everybody else had thought up to that point, right? So we made the recommendation, hey, we actually want to go whale hunting. That's the, that's the ticket, right? And the business was like, holy crap. Like, you're right. Like, we showed all the different angles, and they all basically pointed at whale hunting. Go whale hunting. That's how you solve it, right? So they're like, that's the bullseye that nobody even knew to aim at, right? Because otherwise, what would have happened is we would have continued to hunker down and keep trying to basically dig in this, like, smaller business thing, right? Win it by, it's a volume game. Get as many of these companies in, sell as many of them as you can, figure out what they want, and then deliver to them. And that's it's a super red ocean, super competitive, and we struggle candidly. That's not at the time, right? That wasn't like the place where we had like a clear right to win. But this like whale hunting concept was really just kind of like brand new idea. So that recommendation was yes, okay. Now, like Chris Voss says, that got the yes without the how. Mm. Right. And the how was basically we built an application to allow the sales organization to go and find the whales and then go after the whales. But that was that's the bullseye no one knew to aim at. But you only find that with analytics. But you also got to tell that in a coherent way, which is why, you know, when you reached out to me about storytelling, I was like, aha, this guy gets it. Right. Because it's not just I could have had a spreadsheet that's not going to do anything. Right. We had to like structure the narrative and show them, like, no, look, like, you can slice, dice, and julie in the market. We can explain why the conventional wisdom is not working. Here's the unconventional wisdom. And here's what happens when you explore the unconventional wisdom. So it had to be wrapped in the story. But that's like the, uh, that's why I really like the, the, the airplane and the bullet and armor uh, anecdote because it really, it's a, it's a nice comparison to what we did. Right? That's awesome. So, and I have actually a follow up question about this yeah, because. Please. Because absolutely, like you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it is ultimately storytelling because you can't have the truth. And if you have the the right technology and you're running the algorithms, most practitioners will be what we call a purveyor of truth. 
But the truth in and of itself, if you can't, if you don't know how to deploy it, if you don't have that finesse of actually getting that truth to reach the right people the right way, well, you just won't get the results. So when you were telling the story, I actually didn't know what the, uh, like how it will actually end up in terms of a success or did you experience some major resistance? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but in these situations, when you bring something new, something that's revelatory, you know, it's like a real business epiphany. And you're like, I always tell the story that when, when we had a dog, he, his, his name was Bear. It's a massive dog. And uh, we used to have these uh, family barbecues and um, Bear loved to hunt cats. And we always heard him playing with the cat, which wasn't pretty. And then he always like brought back the cats in his mouth and just put it down in front of us like very enthusiastically. But we weren't as happy about it, even though he thought that this would be the best thing. So, so in this case, when you don't know how to really present your findings, you can hit resistance. So in this case, when you have people working in a particular way, like say wor they, they work with that market, they have a, uh, a habit of reaching out to the smaller businesses. And these people are usually like very good at what they do. So uh, did you encounter any resistance in terms of maybe egos coming at play with, wait a second, like, don't tell us how to do our jobs. We do this for, for a particular reason. Did you have to like consciously, like really be particular about, okay, I'm going to be careful here, but how I present this? Uh, or did you just come in and really, you know, with a bank, put it in front of them that this is what the raw data tells us. Now change what you do. Like, what was your approach there? It was more the latter. And the reason was because there was a clear pain that we were alleviating, right? So you've probably heard the metaphor of like vitamins and painkillers mm -hmm. in like sales scenarios, right? We I, I don't think I have. I don't you think have. I have. No. Okay. So the way that people like this comes up in lots of different sales books, right? But there's vitamins, which you take proactively because you think there's a benefit. And then there's painkillers, which alleviate the pain, right? So like if your back hurts, you take Advil, you feel better. Great. If you feel more or less normal and you take a multivitamin, you still feel more or less normal. So if I want to sell you a vitamin, it's got it's much harder than if I tried to sell you like an Advil because your back hurts, right? So mm -hmm. people will will run towards a pain reliever when they're in pain, if they can because they're in pain, right? And people are just kind of like, eh, if you try to sell them a vitamin. So because we were in a very clear painkiller scenario, it was actually a super soft sell. This was not difficult at all uh, because, you know, this is exactly why they sort of like hired us, so to speak. I mean, right. They said, hey, we're we're hemorrhaging membership. We need help replenishing it. Your team is optimized to help us bring in new stuff. Right. So where should we try to bring in new stuff? And we said, go fishing over here, go hunting over here. And they said, great. Thank you. That's exactly what we needed to help us help the field activate this like there was virtually no resistance there might have been some questions just to make sure that we didn't hit a false positive which is just healthy skepticism uh because it was such a, a an exciting opportunity but there was that of the five years i've been here that was the easiest sell i think in the five years because again we had the clear mandate to solve it and they were clearly in pain mm, this is so cool because uh, I always uh, uh, talk about how with you guys, you are ultimately running a business within a business. You're you're an entrepreneur, right? You have a you have a product to sell, and one of the keys 
for good product sales is the right positioning. So you can have the best product with the flashiest, shiniest features. If you don't position it well, then it won't be well received. And what you said, because I haven't heard the vitamins versus painkillers uh, uh, dichotomy, but oh. absolutely, absolutely the, the principle of you no know, hit the pain point. First of all, find the pain point. And for that, you need meaningful human interactions to find out what that pain is. It can't just happen. You can't, you can't just take a guess. So you can't really circumvent the effort of you no know, listen to this person person, dig down into their pain, see the world through their eyes, deploy some tactical or strategic empathy, right? To, to use the, the, the Chris Voss, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris Voss concepts. So, uh, th so that's great. And then you can sell the product into that. Uh, like another follow-up uh, uh, question with this, how did you leverage? How did you, once you found that, so that, that's fantastic. You found that pain point. It was an easy sell because it was a well-positioned offer uh, for them. How did you leverage that success story moving forward if in any way you did no i mean that's that's basically been our calling card uh so that led to the to the prospecting app prospecting app was uh, some we had a a market leader say it was like disneyland for sales reps which is the, just the best endorsement you can get for anything when someone compares it to disney but that basically set up the next one so we built one specifically for like the broker space right to help with intelligence there uh, it also allowed us to start to push into other areas in the commercial book so my team had historically been extremely focused on what we would call middle market and over the last year like we've really been trying to push up and down market so like the really small businesses the, the like under 100 and then the, the top of the market which is we get into those household names right and so like the the credibility like that was like if you think of the project i just talked about that was like a big infusion of credibility and then that allowed us to start playing in new spaces right it's kind of like when you know to this if mckinsey comes a calling right the company oh come talk to me right it's kind of like well not this that might be a little bit um highfalutin but the point being that like we got to win a big win and so, and they're like, oh, cool. Like this team now wants to work with us. Like let's, let's work with them. Right. So that's basically what it was. It, 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 it does. I know I just said McKinsey, but it does feel like consulting, right? Like you get a win, people hear about it and then it'll, it makes the next one easier to set up. Uh, so that's basically all just continuing to open up the network. Right. So if I had a year ago, maybe I had like five vice presidents that I worked with. Now it's like seven going to 10 you just keep opening up the concentric circles too hmm. um, that makes sense no per perfect sense and th that okay. was actually uh, what that was going to be one of my uh, follow-up questions that kind of ties into this is when you're trying to sell something when you're trying to tell a story um you need to do it from the right position and i don't mean here that position the product well i mean you as the the storyteller because i always talk about how storytelling has three key elements you have the the storyteller the story comes from you have the person that you're telling the story to who receives the story and there's the story shared in between story being told and you can yep. zoom in on those elements like how do i become the best storyteller how do i make sure that the, 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 the story is coming from the right place then how can i focus on that other individual and build that relationship with them so that they can receive the story and how do i tell the best story by using the right language the right form of language and all that stuff by the way if you if you uh read pitch anything from Oren class uh he doesn't use this structure i'm kind of mapping that onto it but but that's what it is he kind of goes into those uh, uh details now uh 
back back to what I wanted to ask. So um, if you uh, think about you going into business and you try to tell the story from the right position, what do you think? Like, how, how should you position yourself? Uh, Pete Williams, one of our members, um, he's the director of data and online at Penguin Random House. And he talks about, like, if you want to drive data-driven change, which is kind of like a buzzword, if you actually want to reach people, you need to talk from the right position. So you need to understand what you're doing here. Are you trying to now really push a certain solution, uh, you really you really want to be assertively take leadership in certain areas, or maybe you want to become a trusted advisor. And he uses this concept of the the uh, data consigliere from, from Godfather, right? That, that, that kind of person who's close to the decision Correct. maker yeah, yeah. and like, like very influential. So what do you think? What do you, how should senior data analytics practitioners see themselves and position themselves in the business to be best received? So I think the like that trusted advisor is probably where I would go if I if I had if the question hadn't been primed, right? I would have probably landed on that myself. And the reason is analytics inherently is a is a question answering service, right? And like what is an advisor doing if not answering questions, right? And so the I guess the unique spin I would add to that is channeling that advice through the listener's incentive structure. And that's why like where I currently am is like super fun, I would say, because the incentive structure is like right in front of your face. Like it's unambiguous, sell more membership, period, full stop. There's no like, there's no questions. I know exactly when we're successful. I know exactly when we're not. But if I'm talking to people in the sales organization or the commercial organization, and if it's if I maintain that connectivity to sell more as I'm advising, then it allows me to sort of have that that place at the table to be that advisor. Now, there's always room to grow in there, right? But the advisor is the right, I think, the right metaphor for it, right? Because analytics, again, this is my own personal philosophy, like we can find cool stuff that they could aim at, but they're not going to take direction from us because we're not the business usually. We're, we're like, I'm going to kick myself as soon as I say this, but it's like, we're, we're an enabling organization. We're like IT, like IT doesn't set the strategy. Finance doesn't set the strategy. Finance funds the strategy. IT doesn't set the strategy. They enable like the, the technology that allows the strategy to be executed, right? There is a, there's a team, the business, that sets the strategy. The best place for analytics is to help be the advisor as that strategy is still being worked out or to help them if their goal is to do X, what's the best way to deliver X based on the analytics? So yeah, we're absolutely, consigliere is like the perfect the perfect metaphor for it because I absolutely know exactly where, where, where he's going with that and I think it fits perfectly, so. And if you think, and if you think about the uh, the Godfather, the consigliere is the most influential character in Absolutely. the in, in the movie, and um, there is this this gap of influence. You mentioned the book Influence. I think that's so relevant, and, and I would want to understand like your way of increasing and improving your skills and competence in this area. One way is to read books, but then before we go there, so um, 
When we think about closing the gap between the business and data analytics, there are a few uh, um, points of contention there, some frictions, some misalignments. One is uh, usually the understanding. The business doesn't really understand what data analytics is. And tied to that closely, but still different in nature, is that... um, they are not being influenced by data because they don't really look at it in the in the right way as you want them to. So they don't really take data analytics seriously. Um, so it, from your perspective, uh, how can you close that gap between uh, the business and analytics? And it's a big question, but if we can maybe zoom in on, on how can data analytics become as influential as it can be mm-hmm. to fulfill that potential? And also how can you close the knowledge gap? Yes. So the the way that I have my team think about this, and I actually like this is something I think about a lot, is it starts from the following, right? The things that get the business out of bed in the morning, get them jazzed up, gets them excited. And the things that get a data scientist excited gets them jumping out of bed in the morning. If you made a Venn diagram, like there's not a whole lot of overlap, right? You think about when you talk to a data scientist, like an actual practicing data scientist, like what are they going to get? You can hear it in their voice. They're going to geek out over like techniques or oh, I learned a new package in R or like I, I learned a new model. Oh, I, I learned how to do neural nets. Awesome. Like that absolutely would never diminish that. But like the business doesn't care, right? Business never cares. When, uh, and so... Focusing, again, we are enablers of the business. So understanding what the business gets excited about and channeling all that energy through that immediately narrows the gap. So they want to hear, what do I do to sell more widgets? Our answer needs to be, here's how you can sell more widgets or you'll sell more widgets if you do X. They don't care how you got the X. They don't care that it was a support vector machine or neural network or random forest. They don't care. They don't care that you merged all this data together probabilistically. They don't care, right? They care about do X, sell more widgets, right? And making that recommendation coherently so that they can say, okay, you're you're telling me to do X. It's because of reason one, two, and three. But these are business-oriented reasons. These are not abstract reasons or like, well, the R squared was like, no, they don't care about the R squared, right? They want to know that it was, it's it's true. They want to know that there's like that causation. And I'll go back to that story I told you about, about where to go to market, right? We put it in terms that clearly tied to how they sell. So we talked about like penetration. We're underpenetrated here. We talked about different sales metrics that illustrate like, okay, not only are we not selling, but here's why we're not selling, right? So it wasn't, we did an analysis. We used all these different like whatever mathematical techniques, but we brought it to their language. We focused on how they're compensated. That's a great way to, to persuade somebody is, okay, at the end of the year, how do you get a bigger bonus? Okay, let me tell you how I'm going to help you get a bigger bonus. You'll be surprised how many people will listen if you put it in such, and it's a little bit crass, but it, you know they'll pay attention, say it more delicately than that. But that's, that's how you can really, really, really narrow the gap. We have to have the technicians focus on what the business asked, answer their question in their language, right? So there's another sales cliche, sell to me in my language, right? When you do that, 
that gap, that delta gets really narrow, really fast. And that's on our side. That's us as the analytics practitioners. The business side, helping them to understand what they found, what they heard, helping them to translate their question into something that's a little bit closer to that an analytics person can solve it. But that's from the relationship, that's from that consigliere positioning, right? But we're not in, we're not them. So we can't drag them to the middle, but as data scientists, we can move ourselves closer to the middle. And a lot of it's just remembering that what gets us excited is not what gets them excited. We need to focus on what gets them excited. Talk to them in their language, right? And that's where like, to go back into my background, like the dual like math and business background allows me to kind of zigzag between the two. And people who really shine in analytics, they have that business fluency as well. And those, those are the ones that mesh the middle and it's like the sky's the limit for that. But that's how I bring them together. That's how I close the gap. Exactly. And I love that combination. Actually, even if you look at our logo, that's the whole idea, the right brain right. and the left, left brain, brain, right brain. Yeah, yeah exactly. The creative exactly. brain, which is the hot cognitive brain, uh, as we call it. So, so th that deals with the hot cognition, relationships, uh, incentives, potential, and it is expansive thinking. Even uh, there's a really good guy. Uh, it might be a little bit too technical, but if you want, I think you're the kind of person who would appreciate that. Uh, Ian McGilchrist, who wrote the, the Master and the Emissary that book and it really goes oh, down okay. in, in, into the, the okay. neural structure of this. It's fascinating. It's absolutely, it's, 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 uh, it's way more exciting than it sounds like. Um, and, uh, he talks about that. And in the left brain, that's sort of the more logical brain, uh, deals with numbers, deals with, uh, uh, strict concepts. And also in its nature of engaging with the world, it's actually much more focused. It likes to lock down on things. And, Actually, actual real inspiration happens when these two hemispheres work in tandem and in perfect coordination. And it's good because the, the analogy works in multiple layers, because even you as a data analyst practitioner, you are your job is to connect these two. So there's the corpus callosum, which is actually the part yes. of the brain that connects the two, right? The, the higher speed the information transfer takes place in the corpus callosum, actually the, the, the smarter the person is, if I wanna like kind of really simplify uh, uh, this concept. So my question ties into that, that again, you seem like a guy who have both of these worlds uh, like really in perspective. And uh, was it something that you just kind of stumbled into? Do you think it's a natural disposition that you have? Or did you make, make some focused effort to improve your competence and skills in sales and communications? Was it just a natural interest or was it a conscious decision for you to pursue that further? It was absolutely a conscious decision because I realized that it was a stumbling point when I was doing like my heaviest data science practicing or practicing. And I was, I would say, oh, I have the truth. Like I did the analysis, it's math, math can, it's, it's like, you can't argue with it. And it would just fall on deaf ears or business people would sort of brush it off and be like, okay, kid, like buzz off. Like, you know, kind of like the stereotypical, hey, nerds, like get out of here, right? So, uh, and that was a major stumbling block. I would say somewhere, call it 2012, maybe something like that. So I've been doing this, like trying to figure this out for 10 years and you're never done. Right. Mm -hmm. But it became extremely apparent to me that like, if I didn't get good at communicating, I was toast. Right. And so I started to read, I think my very first business book was Clayton Christensen's innovators DNA. Mm. I don't know. Oh, because CVS was doing this really big, like innovation, capital I versus little I. And I was like, all right, let me go find some innovation books. And Christensen basically wrote the 
the whole like stack of books mm-hmm. on innovation. Right? So, all right, I'll start with him. But one of the things in that chapter was like the relationship part. And like, that's sort of what I grabbed onto. And then I did the consulting. Now, if you want to like throw a turbocharger into your communications toolkit, like just do consulting. I mean, having like a deck thrown back at you, like this is crap, fix it. Like you get good at communicating because you're forced to, otherwise it's like sink or swim, right? So not saying everybody needs to do a, a tour of duty and consulting, but that very deliberate acquisition of skills. And it was unnatural for me because I was, again, technician. So it cost nothing. I was always excited to like wake up in the morning and watch a YouTube video on something technical, right? Like Dr. Ung's video series on his like machine learning course where they were using like MATLAB and stuff. Like, whoa, that's fine. I'll want to go watch that. That's fun. Learning how to like align things on PowerPoint. I was like, ugh, ugh. right now, right? Maybe I'm maybe over-rotated the other direction, but like that was a conscious acquisition of skills. And so it's anybody can do it. But if you think about data scientists at varying levels, right, you're hired to be a data scientist. And I think even like the way that we recruit people sort of sets people up to be over-rotated on the technical stuff. But then the ones that get promoted, they cultivate those complementary skills. I mean, complementary like it completes. But they're available to anybody, right? You just have to choose to learn them and practice them and be open to feedback. Cause you know, being told you're a poor communicator is not nice to hear. It hurts, right? Cause like I talk all day, I'm good at it. No, you're not like you have to, you have to learn. Right. And so, but it was deliberate skill acquisition. You're never done, but like the conscious acquisition of those skills is what pushes the ceiling up for anybody in this field. Mm-hmm. I'll you- swear by that until I'm dead. <laughs> And, and how do you approach uh, uh, training your team in that way? Because uh, again, we've heard this a million times and it's a reality yeah, yeah. that data scientists are super intelligent, PhDs, they understand the technology and they can do magic with that stuff. But when it comes to deploying that in the business, there is friction to to uh, put it mildly and be diplomatic about it. So uh, how do you how do you approach First of all, getting your team to understand this reality and then actually getting them to improve some of those skills and competences to engage with the business in a more meaningful way. Yeah. So as a as a leader, one of the like the main tenets of my like leadership philosophy is like constant upskilling. This happens to be an area where there's like lots of room to upskill. So it's just baked into like the DNA of the team. So like I I realized that we had a need, so I built a course to teach it, right? Uh, I, one of my like fellow leaders has, uh, he's doing like a Toastmasters thing to just focus on oral delivery, forget about the PowerPoint, like just be a good public speaker. Right. So it's really, the, uh, committing to it. Right. It's, it, you know, in, in some ways it's like, it's like exercise. Like if you want to get in shape, you got to do it. You have to force yourself to do it until it becomes second nature. And then you don't have to think about it anymore, but you know, taking somebody who's like, oh, I'm not good at PowerPoint. Okay, well then let's get good at PowerPoint. I'll teach you how. Like it's there's a there's like a clear picture of what success looks like for a lot of these skills, and you, and you can map from your current state to that desired state and fill in the gaps. And, and having someone to have that feedback loop, I think being open to and soliciting feedback is a major way. It's like, hey, uh, director of mine or or senior manager of mine or whomever, uh, I'm actively pursuing this skill 
can you please point out where what's working, what's not working for me, right? So having that feedback loop, having that commitment to growing it, because I think my own opinion, having just interacted with lots of people is they brush this off because it's not as fun as the technical stuff. And the way I would try to frame it for people to give them an incentive, and I put it in mathematical terms for them because that's what's going to resonate. If you take a line and you, uh, eight inches long, eight inch line, okay, and you go from eight to 10 inches, all right, that's a 25% gain, but that's, that could be very difficult. But if you take perpendicular lines and you want to grow the area, well, if you take those same two inches and put them on two, you can like dramatically blow out the area, right? A four by four is much bigger than a straight line. You could do this in three dimensions too, if you want to go from like a plane to a box, but the, this doesn't work without a visual. Uh, so that's my mistake for going down here, but growing cubically will always outperform growing linearly. Right. Scott Adams has this nice framework where it's like being at the 70th percentile for like 10 different things will make you a monster compared to somebody who's at the 99th percentile in one thing. And I think my own observation is that professionals in general try to be the 99th percentile, whether you want to be the 99th in accounting or data science. And it's when you open it up to grow cubically or even just quadratically that. It's like, wow, like this really opens things up for you, right? Because it's so hard to get to the 99th percentile in data science because there's people like, you know, the, um, well, there's just like people like Professor Ong basically like damn near invented the field. Like you're going to compete with him or find a different axis and then you can grow on it, right? So uh, <clears throat> that's, that's how I try to instill the framework, right? So constant practice. And then helping people to appreciate that like cubic or quadratic growth instead of linear growth. Mm. And if you get the commitment, you get the practice, you get the good attitude because you've opened up their mind to thinking about growth cubically, you typically get the progress. And you can show the progress too. Like, hey, look at this deck you made a year ago. It's terrible. Look at this deck you just made a week ago. That's beautiful, right? And then they can see it. And then it's the same thing, right? So mm -hmm. anyway, it's, it's that's funny how I try to grow it. No, that's so cool. And it's funny that you mentioned Scott Adams because that's how I actually learned about the book Influence. I think I listened oh, to, a, I, I, I think I listened to a podcast between uh, him and Sam Harris, uh, I believe, and it just blew my mind because it was a whole different uh, view on human psychology and influence. And I know that book, I can't remember the, the title uh, that you mentioned about skill stacking. Uh, it's, it's all about, you don't need to be the best at something in the world, it's enough if you get into the 70, maybe 80%, uh, maybe in, in one scan, then just keep, keep it relatively good in others. And then there will be a, un a unique amalgamation of those skills that will be in and of itself, one of a kind out there. Uh, so it's really good. Do you remember the, the name of the book, by the way? It was uh, something about da 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 and keep, keep still winning. Still so he, winning. he has something, it's like how to fail and, and succeed That's, or something that, like that. But he mentions that construct i think in like every book you write so oh, yeah, yeah. any any exposure to scott adams will probably give you the gist of this i think i saw it putting the political nature of it aside yeah in win bigly <laughs> i, I, I read that too in win bigly uh 
And he also mentioned Cialdini, how Cialdini is the Godzilla of... Uh, of yeah, yeah, life, yeah. The, right? the, yeah. The, the, the weapons. He, he says that the, you have yes. these skills and then you, you, you have the weapons grade. But, like weapons but, grade. But, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah so so that was a really powerful powerful uh, endorsement of, of, uh, of Cialdini. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dave, this was really fun and we still have a lot to talk about. Unfortunately, our, our time is up, but I'm sure uh, we can yeah. continue the conversation in some way. Actually, we have some uh, thought leadership pieces now uh, rolling out. And just based on this conversation, uh, um, I would love to capture your perspective and maybe zoom in on some things. So uh, may, 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 I, I'm sure that our audience members would love to hear. And this was really fun. If you had uh, just one uh, key advice to give to your fellow practitioners who want to take advantage of the decade of data that's upon us, uh, what would that be? Focus on the complementary skills. The technology is only going to make the math easier. And so if you want to stand out, you've got to be a good communicator. You've got to be able to contextualize the math. You've got to be able to understand the business. That's what's the difference between someone who caps out at making 100K per year and someone that goes all the way to half a mil. Being able to complement the technical. Because the, te the machines are only going to get better. But that human part, that complementary part, that's what's going to set people apart. Amen. That's my closing thought. Amen. Well, let's keep sharing the good news uh, moving forward. Thank you for being on the show. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we hope to, me. yeah, absolutely. And we hope to uh, have you back and uh, continue the conversation. Right on. Thanks for having me. Take care.